All right. Uh, this is my, my prayer. Is I, um, I, I'm going to pray for a couple things as, as I teach. And guys, I'm so honored to be here. Like, I'm so honored, um, Michelle and Gabe, in that order. Um, in that order. Come on. I got the order right. Yeah. Um, for, for just inviting me, um, Ashley and Yaku, having me come out. It's, it's, it's an honor. This is our first, um, it's our first trip to South Africa. Um, can you guys welcome my 12-year-old daughter, Cece? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, my first trip to South Africa, the, my first message is on sexuality, of course. Yeah. And so tonight we're going after it. I'm excited. You guys hold on, take notes. Um, if it gets, you know, whatever, if it gets too weird, there's, there's a door, there's a door. And, uh, but uh, no, 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 it won't. This is, this, this will be really good. I hope. Um, but here, here's my prayer. One of my big prayers is that God would raise up a generation that, that come as expectant to the word as we do to worship. That, that God would raise up a generation of disciples that come to the story of God as fiercely as we come to the songs of God. Uh, everyone comes to the worship night. Uh, very few come to the word night. Uh, we love to sing about realities that many of us don't actually take the risk to live. And so my prayer is that, that, that God, that as I preach, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, that, that as the word is preached, Jesus himself comes the incarnation of the word the incarnation of Jesus that he comes and he walks uh, among the body putting his hands on people imparting the word so listen whenever I'm, I'm preaching a message and I feel like it's absolutely tanking when I'm preaching a message and I'm like this is this is awful it's just not coming I just look for Jesus and, and Jesus looks at me he's like I got you because regardless of how awesome or awful the word is the word is here and he's imparting things and he's speaking things. And how many times have I preached a message where at the end someone comes and says, that was amazing, it was just for me. And I'll ask the question, what was it? And they'll say something that I didn't even say. And I'm like, that's really good, but I didn't say it. That was Jesus. Just somehow Jesus stood between me and you and, and he gave you a better word. And so uh, one of my prayers is that, that, you, that you'd be awakened to the word. Like some of you are meant to preach the word. We're all meant to carry the word of God. And so... I also want to, uh, one of my prayers as I preach is that God would give you vision. I'm asking God to raise up not just missionaries, but visionaries. Yes. Uh, on the way here, I felt the Lord said not just revivalists, but revealists. I've never heard that word before. Not just revivalists, people that love the fire of God and have learned to live in and from it, but revealists, those that, that are able to actually reveal the, 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 the Father heart of God wherever they go. And, and so my prayer is that God would give you vision, like that miracles would happen in this place, that you would leave seeing things. Here's the reality. Passion in the kingdom of God is not enough. It's not enough to be passionate. Some of you, God's inviting you from passion to vision. It is not enough to stand before Jesus one day and go, at least I was passionate. At least I sang my heart out. Passion must lead us to vision. Passion is when you feel God. Vision is when you can see yourself doing it with God. 
We've got to move. Vision begins with passion. It always begins with, with feeling, with aching. We've got to feel what God feels if we're going to live what God lives and do what God does. But God wants to lead us from passion, from being passionaries to becoming visionaries, people of vision. So as I talk about sexuality, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching through you. I'm asking God to actually enlarge your vision that, that some of you would leave getting dreams and begin bleeding for this stuff and carrying a vision for sons and daughters, a vision for family, a vision for your campus, a, a vision for your nation, a vision for other nations that we can carry. We can become the visionaries and we can carry God's design and God's delight for sexuality to the nations. One of my prayers, some of you are going to burn. As I teach this, some of you are going to burn with this. And it's because God wants you to carry this. You're going to leave this place and go, man, I burned. I don't know what that was. And God will begin to whisper, you're meant to carry this. I'm giving you vision. Some of you are going to write about this. Some of you are going to write songs about it. Some of you poets and preachers and pastors and pioneers and parents, you're going to carry this in unique ways. But one of my prayers is that you would get vision that you'd see it. Uh, when, they, when they opened and dedicated uh, Disney World, when they cut the ribbon, Walt Disney had already died. So his brother was at the front of, of this ribbon-cutting ceremony. And, and one of Walt's friends turned to Walt's brother and said, I wish Walt could have been here to see this. To which Walt's brother said, he did see it. That's why it's here. Here's a man who saw Disneyland and saw Disney World. Man, did you feel the anointing? Man, every time we talk about Walt, listen, he saw it. I believe God's going to birth worlds from this place. Because here's the reality. We, we only live those things that we've had vision for. We, we only do those things that, that we've seen ourselves doing. Uh, the reason why some of us pray for the sick here when we get an opportunity and others don't, the, those praying for the sick, they've seen themselves praying for the sick and the sick getting healed. The rest of you, listen, you love Jesus. You just have no vision for it. We only do those things. And so that's why God raises up visionaries because they create environments. They create stories. They, they, they create worlds and rhythms of vision for a generation to actually see what's possible. Listen, if I can't see it, I can't live it. And I got wrecked with this st statistic years ago that for every 100 hours that our generation are taking in distorted, perverted images and narratives of sexuality and sex and dating and marriage, for every 100 hours, this generation will get a one-second glimpse of God's design and God's delight. we got to change this in our day. It's, it, listen, it's not that a generation's not getting discipled. It's how are they getting discipled? Yes. There's a generation that, that's learning everything that they will know about sexuality through Netflix and Hulu and Reels and TikTok, the gateway to pornography in our day and hour. And so the, the question isn't, are they being discipled in sexuality? It's, it, it's whose voice are they hearing? So we got to, listen, God's raising up filmmakers. He's raising up songwriters. He's raising up fathers and mothers. He's raising up creatives. He's raising up prophets who will carry a vision. It's, it's the sex scene we want a generation to see. 
So 21 years ago, I stood under a hoopah. I want to talk about the hoopah tonight. Uh, I stood under a hoopah, and the most beautiful Latino woman in the world came walking toward me. She would soon be my wife. Uh, she walked down the aisle. I stood there with my groomsmen, and the bridesmaid stood to my right. Uh, I, I put on an acoustic guitar, and I sang her a song. Then I stood before my soon-to-be wife, and I spoke my vows to her. It was this beautiful moment. We had 800 people at our wedding. <laughs> Listen, my wife wanted 50 people. But my, my parents, they pastor a, town, uh, pastor a church in our city, and they invited the entire church on a Sunday. My wife was like, you suck. Wait, 800 people. She was, she was a bit upset until after the honeymoon when we came home to 700 gifts. I, dude, at, at that point, she's like, I love your parents. Uh, no joke, we had three to four of everything we registered for. It was insane. We were set for years. We still have four microwaves. Uh, so then in this... In this uh, Beautiful ceremonies. We stood under the hoopah. It came, uh, that moment came where I, I finally got to kiss my bride in front of everyone. And, and uh, as I leaned in for this, like, this romantic kiss moment, that moment all of us dudes wait for, right? Come on. Bro, I, this is really close. We're going to, I'm almost on your lap. We are going to get to know each other tonight, okay? I'm going to preach as long as possible. I'm loving this. As I kissed my wife on our wedding day, I looked up, and a dozen doves came flying out of nowhere, right above our heads, and they did two loop-de-loops and flew off into heaven. My grandma thinks this is a miracle. She stands up in the front row and says, it's a miracle, and everybody loses it. What I didn't know and what no one knew is my parents, my mom, had hid these doves in a cage down by the river, and she released the doves when I kissed Erica, my wife, and no one had a heart to tell my grandma. She went to her grave thinking those doves were from the Holy Spirit. We never told her. It was this, this beautiful moment as I... As I stood there, as I stood under the hoopah, this is, this is where a marriage begins. It's a, it's a man and God, and, and, and once that man learns to walk with God and he knows God, then God brings him as Eve. That, that picture in the Bible of God bringing Eve to Adam, this, this is this picture we echo in, in, in weddings. When a, when a father brings the daughter and walks his daughter down the aisle, this is, this is Genesis being retold and replayed. This is God bringing Eve to Adam. Now here's the ironic thing. 21 years as I stood under this hoopah, I had no idea what a hoopah was. It wasn't until years later that I would learn about the hoopah. Everyone say hoopah. hoopah. How many have heard about the hoopah? A handful. Okay, this will be fun. Uh, so the hoopah, listen, I'm going to do just a, a brief teaching and then, and then share some imagery with you. But the hoopah comes out of the Exodus story. Um, here's this, this story where God is rescuing 
um, 2,000 orphans um, from Egypt. He's, he's rescuing Israel. He's leading them into sonship and daughterhood. He's leading them to the to the bottom of a mountain where he will make a covenant with them and he will call them into a marriage with himself. There's this uh, fascinating moment in Exodus 6 where the Lord speaks to Moses. Uh, God has been upset with Moses. Here's Moses that God has called to be a voice. And Moses seems to have more excuses than faith. Over and over again, Moses will say things like, I can't do it. He keeps bringing his doubt. He keeps bringing his insecurity before the Lord. At some point, God actually says to Moses, fine, if you won't believe about you what I believe about you, then Aaron will be my voice. Guys, I love the story of Moses, a man who spoke who became a friend of God's. But imagine had Moses actually lived into the full voice that God saw in his life. And so the only time in this whole story, God has all kinds of reasons to be upset with Moses. But the only time God gets upset with Moses is when Moses won't believe what God says about him. But at this point, by chapter 6, now Moses is upset at God. I love their friendship. There is room for all of it with God. The presence of God is not a place to ignore your emotions. It's a place to come pour out your emotions. God is big enough for your confusion. He's big enough for your anger. He's big enough for your frustration. If we don't get frustrated in the presence, if we aren't confused in the presence, if we don't get angry in the presence of God, it will spill out in other areas of our life. Worship should be the safest place to come and bring all you are to all he is. So in Exodus 6, now Moses is frustrated with God because God keeps talking and he hasn't acted. And at this point, Moses is like, are you just a God who talks or do you actually act? Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let my people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. Then God said to Moses, I'm Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I reaffirmed my covenant with them. I gave them my promise. You can be sure, Moses, I've heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians. I am aware of my covenant. Here's this interesting moment. Guys, some of these stories are so brilliant, but so nuanced and so subtle. We can move so quickly past these significant moments. God says to Moses, Moses, I'm about to act. I'm about to come through on my promise. What God spoke in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, God says, I'm about to act on it now. But before God acts on his promise, before he puts his strong hand on Pharaoh, God reveals a new name to Moses. God says to Moses, I'm revealing myself as Yahweh. And God says to Moses, I've never spoken this word to anyone on the planet before. 
I revealed myself to your fathers as El Shaddai, but to you, Yahweh. God feels the need to tell Moses this because Moses wouldn't know this. He's like, hey, dude, this is actually a big deal, man. I'm revealing myself as Yahweh, the Lord, and nobody's ever heard that name before. I've never whispered this name to anyone. Profoundly, God shows Moses' skin. He showed no one. But not on the first date. This is chapters in. I love the endless journey of God. When you think you've seen everything, he shows you something new. I mean, isn't this the journey of marriage? God reveals a name to Moses. What's profound here is God is a God of war, and he's about to go to war against Egypt and show his power in a way the earth had never seen. But before God wars, he woos. God is a lover before a warrior. God feels the need in this moment Hey, listen, I'm about to go to war on your behalf, but first, he reveals his name to Moses. God is far more concerned with how we will know him than anything we will ever do for him. I'm going to act on your behalf, but first, I need need you to know me. But then God goes on and he does something else here. He says, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord. I'll free you from your oppression. I'll rescue you from your slavery. I'll redeem you with a powerful arm. I'll claim you as my own. What God does here is God speaks four vows. These are the wedding vows that in this day and this culture, a Jewish groom would speak to his bride on their wedding day. These four vows... I will free you, I will rescue you, I'll redeem you, and I will claim you as my own. Anyone hearing these vows, these promises from the Lord would would know, wow, there's a wedding coming. Because what God intends to do here is so, listen, we can move quickly past this to this astounding display of power. We can move past Exodus 6, which is why very few even teach this passage, because we want to get to the action. But too often, we try to get to the action, we miss the intimacy. We miss the covenant. I'm talking about dating for sure. A generation that wants to get to the action, and we miss out on deep knowing. So here's God who's about to marry a nation. And for years I wondered, why would God do this? Here's God who desires to put his nature, to, it's, the, it's the heart of God that every nation on the planet would know him. Wouldn't you agree? But God's plan to do that is to marry one nation. Now it's interesting that the Bible begins with God officiating a wedding. The whole Bible starts with a wedding. God marries Adam and Eve. But that thing goes south really quick. Sin enters the world. The enemy wages a a war, an assault on intimacy and marriage and sexuality and sex. and, And so here's God in Genesis. God 
officiates a wedding. In Exodus, God enters a wedding. God doesn't bring two together. God actually marries a nation. Why would God, if it's God's desire that every nation on the earth know him, why would God marry one nation? Because God is a one-woman God. It is fascinating, fascination, how God marries Israel because he shows the earth what marriage looks like. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be faithful to a bride even when she is unfaithful to her lover. This is the story of Genesis and Exodus and the rest of the Bible. Jesus comes to restore and redeem all of this. It is profound when you understand what's happening here. So in Exodus chapter 6, God speaks these vows. Uh, In Exodus 19 chapter 5, God says this, If you'll obey me, if you'll keep this covenant, you'll be my own special treasure. Possession is the, the Hebrew word from among all the people on the earth, for the earth belongs to me. This phrase was a, was a, a wedding. This is marriage for a, a, a groom would, would call his bride his, his, his treasure. His treasure. So again, God is using this, uh, this wedding language. And then in Exodus chapter uh, 25, verse 8 and 9, God takes this further. He says, okay, Now have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle because I want to come and dwell. So not only does God marry them, God says, build us a place because I'm moving in. We're getting married and I'm going to come dwell with you. And we are going to put marriage on display for the earth to encounter God. Uh, you guys know the story of Exodus. They actually do this. They build a space. Um, and in Exodus uh, chapter 40, God actually does this. It says that God shows up in, in such glory, in such awe and wonder. And, and he fills this place, this tabernacle, this place that they've built for him. And it said that God would, God would hover over them in a cloud by day and a fire by night. Uh, these days... God lives in us. Where is God? He's in us. He's in his people. He's in his church. You know, where, where you go, God goes. You know what I mean? Like, like you can't miss him because he's in you. But back then, they would go, where is God? Oh, there he is. And he was in a cloud. And the Bible says that when the cloud would move, they would move with him. When the cloud would stop, they would stop and set up camp. They're learning how to be married to God. They're learning how to live in the delight and in the blessing and in the adventure of God. And it said that for 40, it said that for their, their whole journey, for 40 days and 40 years, they, 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 they walked with God in this new adventure of marriage that would become a story for the nations. That in the New Testament, God invites all the nations into this covenant. But there is a marriage story God is building in the Old Testament. So the Israelites and the Jewish people, because of this story in Exodus, because of the God that hovered over them, blessing them, fathering them, delighting in them, leading them, because of that God, they would, they would build a hoopah and they would stand under the hoopah on their wedding day. Uh, 
It's said that men think about sex every 20 seconds. I don't know if that's true or not. All the guys are like, I don't know if it's true or not, but here's what I do know. I, I, I know that we think about sex, but do we think deeply enough about sex? The Jewish people had such a deep theology of sexuality. And so this Exodus story became the storyline, the narrative, that they would build a hoopah. So I don't know if you've seen this in Jewish weddings, or maybe you have friends that, it's, it's this canopy, the word hoopah is the, the Hebrew word for covering or canopy. And there's a cloth draped over it. There's, there's four poles and a cloth draped over it. The cloth is actually the, the, the father's very own prayer shawl. So they're standing under the prayers of, of father and mother. It's beautiful imagery. So a Jewish man on his wedding day stands under the hoop. He stands there. This is where, this is where um, they, they believe that, that, um, that marriage begins with a man and God. And once that man has learned to know God and walk with God, once that man, then he gets the father's blessing and that father brings Eve to him. And it's all done. What's fascinating about this is um, he would stand under the hoopah. They would speak their vows under the hoopah. And then for... Uh, seven days, or they would make love under the hoopah. We call this hoopah under the hoopah. <laughs> so they take this hoopah and they actually set it up and this couple makes love for the first time and everyone kind of stands outside. It's super weird, you know, kind of like listening. But here they are, they make love under the hoopah. So they've, they've spoken their vows. She comes and stands under the hoopah with him, under this, this, this covering. And, and, and then they make love under the hoopah. And then for seven days, like we do this, in the U.S., we do this like this one night gathering and there's dancing and there's punch. You know what I mean? There's a punch bowl. But, like, but they had a seven-day celebration, and the groomsmen, the groomsmen would actually, and there's a whole, listen, the, the groomsmen, the, the friends of the groom, there's a teaching on this that just is fascinating. I'm, I'm convinced that, that worship leaders, the whole worship movement and ministry are actually the friend of the groom. It's called the shospin. And uh, there's, there's a brilliant teaching on that that I think helps worship leaders know how to host the presence in a way that facilitates the marriage that is and the marriage that's coming. But these, these groomsmen, um, if you were groomsmen back then, you would actually stand at the four corners uh, of the hoopah and you would carry the hoopah over the bride and groom for seven days. Nobody wanted to be a groomsman back then. <laughs> and, and so for seven days, they would carry... And, and it was this picture that, that God is in the vows, that God is in the lovemaking, that God is in the party, that God is in all of it. And it's this, this, this symbol, this beautiful imagery of covering and also community. It, it is the covering of God who hovers over them, delighting in them, leading them, fathering them, it's the covering of the father and mother of the bride and the groom, the very prayer shawl that's draped over it. And then community as the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, they stand at the corners of this. And it's this fascinating way that, that a young Jewish couple step into covering and community on their special sacred day. Like how far are we from that? I was in Canada years ago, and God was speaking to me about the hoopah, and I, I heard the Lord say so clearly, would you call a generation back under the hoopah? Would you call a generation back into the delight and the design of God's, God's intention for sexuality? Because the reality is we, we live 
We live in a generation swimming in the brokenness of sexuality. And some of it things we've done, choices we've made. Some of it choices made for us, things done to us. And, and we live in a generation that's ripped sex out of marriage and ripped marriage out of covenant. And God wants sex back. Hashtag. Like God wants sex back. Sex is God's and sex is good. We got to shout this. Sex is God's and sex is good. Sex was not invented in some dark alley. Uh, sex began in heaven. Like this was God's idea. Like Adam and Eve didn't, Adam and Eve weren't in the garden and they, and they happened to be like in a bush together and they stumbled and, you know, had sex and they're like, whoa, what was that? Let's do that again. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, whoa, did you feel that? Did you feel that? And she's like, no. <laughs> Listen, sex was not invented. This was sex is God's. Like we, guys, we need a deeper theology of this. God was sitting in heaven and, and he was coming up with ideas and, and he calls the angels over and he's like, I got this idea. And, and they're like, more flowers? And he's like, no, 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 better than flowers. Uh, more colors? No, 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 better than colors. More animals? No, no, way better than animals. And God lays out this plan for sex and the angels are like, wow, that sounds fun. And then God gives, listen, the, the gift of sexuality. God gives Adam and Eve. He brings them together. Listen, the first command in the Bible. Guys, we cannot be ashamed of our sexuality. The enemy has warred to bring shame to sexuality. We wage war against shame. We were sexual before we were sinful. Our story doesn't begin with Genesis 3, it begins with Genesis 1, and, and too often, especially in the religious church, we've hijacked the narrative of God. The Bible is a Genesis 1 Bible to Revelation 22, and there are many that have created a narrative, a Bible within a Bible that starts with Genesis 3 and ends with judgment and Genesis or Revelation 20. But in God's story, it begins with creation and ends with new heavens and new earth. And yes, there's sin, and yes, there's judgment, but it has to find its place in the bookends of God's story. We were sexual. When God had the world exactly the way he wanted it, he gave Adam and Eve the gift of sex. And what's profound is the, the, the very first command in the Bible is what? Be fruitful and multiply. This is God's way of saying, hey, listen, have sex and lots of it. I call it fill the earth sex. Like that was the mandate. This is God. This is our story. The enemy has hijacked our story. He has warred to bring shame to it. God wants to raise up a shame-free generation that can wage war against shame and go, God wants sexuality back. And yes, we know there is brokenness. And yes, we know there is redemption. But in God, listen, in God's design and delight, when God had the world exactly the way he wanted it, he gave sex as a gift. Can you imagine a world, sexuality with no shame? We have a thousand reasons that shame has attached to our sexuality from, from pornography to casual sex to things we've seen to things that have happened to us, to choices we made. And so 
we're, we're living, as we live into the fullness of, of the redemption and the restoration of our own bodies and our own souls, we can be those that create shame-free zones for others. God is inviting a generation back under the hoopah, back into the design and the delight of what God has created. See, in the, uh, in the Jewish culture, when a young man, I don't know how you guys say it in South Africa, but when a young man has a, the hots for a girl, when he fancies her, well, how do you guys say it? Small? How, what? Small, is that what I? Okay, when he's just like, I don't know what you're saying, but that. Dude, when he's, when he's just like, oh, when everything in him leaps for this woman. I, I mean, this, listen, this is what happens in the book of Genesis. The first time, listen, the first time Adam sees Eve, he says, bone of my bone. He busts out in song. This is the first Glee episode. <laughs> he sees her and he, listen, he wants to jump her bones. That is what's happening there. He wants this girl. Listen, God is, God is not ashamed of sexual passion. This is how God wired us. And so when a, a Jewish man... Smoke. <laughs> A woman, he goes, listen, he goes to her father. And if this father deems that this, this son is worthy to pursue this woman. And I just love the story begins that he has to go to her father first. Guys, we need, we need a generation. It is possible to date and pursue a woman in a way that, that is in the design and the delight of God. It is possible. Dating can be the most frustrating thing and the most fulfilling thing, but the choice is yours. And there's a way to do this in community and undercovering that actually is safe for your soul. There's a way to do it that breathes the life of heaven. Friends don't let friends date in the dark. This... This ha listen, this happens all the time. It is so weird. There's this guy, and he loves Jesus. There's this girl. She loves Jesus. She's on the worship team. He's the drummer. And then all of a sudden, they start dating. And for whatever reason, they disappear for four months. It's always four months. I don't know why. It's like, where did they go? They started dating. Like when they needed community the most, when they needed people standing at the corners of the hoopah, when they needed covering the most, they disappear in those early formational years of their relationship. This happens all the time. It's so strange. And then after four months, they appear again, but they don't appear in a gathering. They appear online on Facebook engaged. Come on. And it's like, wait a second, they're engaged. I didn't even know they were dating. Did anyone know they were dating? And on Facebook, it's not like I can get on there and go, hey, I disapprove or get back into community. So I'm texting them going, where have you guys been? I didn't even know you were dating. You're engaged now. And there's this whole generation, for some reason, hooking up in the shadows. This is happening in the church and, of course, in the world. There's this generation that when we need people 
forming and speaking into our, our relationship the most in those formational days and weeks and months, we disappear. Listen, God's raising up fierce friends who are not passive to this, but they will pursue. They will pursue their friends. Friends don't let friends date in the dark. They go after it. So here's this guy who has to ask the father to pursue his daughter. And if the father deems him worthy, what he does is he, he hosts this uh, engagement party. And at this engagement party, at some point in the party, the dude's over here dancing with his friends. The girl's over here. She's dancing with her friends. At some point, this dude has to get the courage to walk across the room and ask this, this young Jewish woman for her hand in marriage. This is how he does it. Traditionally, he offers her a cup of wine. Now, this, this woman, she has a choice. Now, what's profound about this is this is what Jesus does with his disciples. At the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? He offers them a cup. They knew exactly what he was doing. He offers her this cup. Now, she can drink of the cup. If she drinks of the cup, she says, listen, I'm into this man. I want to marry you. She says yes. But if she doesn't want to marry this man, she takes the cup and she throws it on the ground. Listen. Yeah, it's clear. It is clear. And, and everybody's there. The entire village comes. All his friends, all her friends. This is why... This is why this dude's sweating in the corner and his friends are pushing him. You got to do it. You got to do it. It takes him like four songs before he can get across the room because he's terrified. But listen, he can't ask her out online. Like he actually has to talk to this girl. It is insane. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-online dating. I know that in our day, but, but, I, but listen... You've got to get face-to-face. -face. Men, we have got to learn how to pursue women under the hoopah. We, we've, got to learn, we've got to learn to come into to, to shame-free zones of pursuing a woman and, and, and being courageous enough to be rejected. Yes. And, and know that if she says no, it's not a rejection. It's, it, it's, not, it's not your identity. It's not, a re it's not a rejection of who you are. It just means there's a better girl for you. It just means there's someone else, but we need the boldness. A and women, we we've... <laughs> we got to raise up, raise up. I'll get there in a second. So he hands her this cup, and he makes a speech. If she, if she drinks of the cup, he makes a speech and he says this, word for word, this is the speech in a Jewish wedding. He says to this woman, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But I'm going to come back for you. And when I come back for you, I'm going to claim you and I'm going to take you as my own. Guys, in John 14, this is the speech Jesus makes to his disciples. In, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. 
People have taken this. There's a weird theology that God's building mansions for us in heaven. That is not biblical. This is wedding language. Biblically, this is John 14. This is, this is Jesus saying, listen, there is a wedding coming. I am leaving, but I'm coming back for you. This is a promise of second coming. So what this guy does, for a year he can't see her. So the engagement lasts a year, but he can't see her during the engagement, which I think could do us some good. So for a year, he goes, and he actually builds a room onto his father's house. He, he is building his life with God. He is preparing a place. He, he, he's becoming a man of the word. He's building character. L listen, it is, it is terrifying women to marry a man who doesn't know the word. A man who's not in community a man who hasn't built a secret life, a man who hasn't built and prepared a place for you. If he's rogue and he's unteachable and he's not in community, break up with him tomorrow. I, I promise because the room he's preparing is the room you're going to live in. We, we live in. Listen, we live in a generation where, where, where women are using sex to get a man. Do you know what the problem is? Using, using your body to get a man, here's the problem. It works. But you have a man who loves your body and has no idea how to care for your soul. You have a man who loves sex but has no idea how to steward the presence in your marriage. If he can't steward your body, he can't steward the presence. Listen, if he's pressing you for sex before marriage, he's showing you what kind of man he is. He's the kind of man who has sex outside of marriage. He may say to you, no, 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 I'll be faithful to you. But he's showing you his name, his true name. If he's, if he's pressing you for sex outside of marriage, he will press other women for sex in your marriage. But it won't be you. And guess what? You can blame you because he showed you what kind of man he is. Marriage doesn't change men. It reveals men. So as women, listen, we've, we've got to provoke a man. We've got to draw him, not with our bodies, but with our character. If you can win a man with your life with Jesus, you could keep him with your life with Jesus. And listen, I've been married 21 years. Sex changes. Bodies change. If we, listen, if we are attracted to the right things... It will breathe such eternal life into our relationships. So here's this man who's, who's preparing a place. This woman, she goes where she is and that her flame for God is as bright as ever. And the flame represents her purity. She makes a covenant with this man that I will keep my body for you. I will not give it away cheaply. You don't have to worry. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting a flame. This is the story Jesus tells in Matthew 25 when he talks about ten virgins. But five of them, they didn't keep oil in their lamp. And when the bridegroom came, their lamps had grown dim and he didn't know where or how to find her. 
These are powerful stories. The, the, the life in the stories of Jesus comes to life when you understand the, the dating and the marriage and the hoop of vision. It's a strong vision for the church. So as much as he's building a room, she is building her flame. She's, she's falling more in love with Jesus. She's becoming a woman of the word. She's becoming a woman of his voice. She's becoming a woman of, of purity. She's giving herself to the things of God because when that man comes, she wants to stand in that window and say, see my flame. I kept the oil burning for you. So here's this dude that just can't wait for that moment. But how does he know when he can go get his bride? How does he know he's ready? Does he choose his readiness? No, he's in community. And he's under covering. He's got brothers in his life. What's fascinating, the Song of Songs, if we could teach through Song of Songs, guys, it is amazing. But in chapter 3, on that day, when he comes and he stands before her and he sees her flame in the window and he takes her and they go and stand before the, under the hoopah together, it says that, that his groomsmen come and they're, they're holding swords, wielding swords to protect this marriage. Imagine standing on that wedding day and looking at the men in your life, women. Imagine standing at that day, looking at the women in your life, knowing that they were with you, protecting that flame. It, the, the picture in Song of Songs chapter 3 is the guys are wielding swords. Imagine standing there on your wedding day and all your groomsmen, they have swords that they've been wielding to protect your marriage. Imagine, listen, all the, student, all, the, all the women in here, imagine seeing all of your, your soon-to-be-your-husband's, like, CrossFit friends. And they've been doing workouts, and they've been doing push-ups, and they look like Gabe. <laughs> all to protect the future and the adventure of your marriage. The, the problem is, guys, I, I have married probably, I, I've officiated probably a hundred weddings or more in my life. The amount of weddings that I've officiated that were so incredibly, tragically empty. Because everybody wants people there on the day. Very few want people there for the, the journey. Everyone shows up with the oil on the day. But very few carry the oil on the journey. Every dude shows up with a sword on that day, but very few actually have groomsmen that know how to wield swords at all. Guys, is this a vision for that wedding day and this wedding adventure? Because the wedding day is, is actually a picture. The wedding day, it reveals the journey up to that point. And the amount of, of weddings I've been at where I've walked away going, God, your spirit wasn't there. And God, God will say things, yeah, you can't use me for a day. A, a wedding will always be an overflow of the flame and the room that you've built and that you've kept alive into that day. And, and prophetically, the wedding's always a picture of what's to come. And I'm not saying God can't redeem all of that. He can but there is powerful imagery of knowing you stood there and you had people surrounding you to protect that flame in that room. So how does this man know? Here's the reality. 
This groom, he doesn't go chase after this bride until his father says go. This is why in the book of Acts, when they say, Jesus, when are you coming back? We'll build the rooms. We'll keep the flame in the window. You'll know where we are. We'll make a space for you. But when will you come? And Jesus is like, only the Father knows. Because when the Father says, I'm ready, and you're ready, he's going to send me, and Jesus comes. Can you, can you imagine Jesus? It gives me this vision of Jesus in heaven. What's interesting is we spend so much time talking about Jesus 30 years on the earth, and so little time talking about his 2,000 years on the throne. We need a better, what I call it, ascension theology. Most of the church, when we think of the ascension of Jesus, because we have such poor ascension theology, the gospel is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, he, was, he, rose, he ascended, and he will come again. That's it. The, the gospel isn't just that he, that he died and rose, that he came and lived, that he ascended and he will come again. We hardly talk about the ascension, so most of the church assumes the ascension is Christ's absence. So mo most people have a theology of, well, Jesus left, and he's somewhere, and maybe he'll come back and, and, uh, and rescue the, 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 the hell out of us someday. You know what I mean? Like, that's it's this weird escapist theology that Jesus is up here. Do you know the ascension is not Jesus' absence, but it's his universal presence as king of the planet? And can you imagine Jesus on the throne, Jesus? Listen, we need to talk about the 30 years, Jesus on the earth, Jesus. But we need a better vision of what Jesus, is do what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years on the throne. And I think part of the picture, when I see Jesus on the throne, I just see him and he's pacing. And he's saying, Father, come on. Send me in. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Like, like, a, like a, a, a young Jewish man going, come on, I built the house. Like, I'm ready for my bride. At some point, the father is going to be like, go for it, Jesus. And Jesus comes for his bride. Guys, we could talk about this all night, but I want to pray and do a couple things right now. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here right now. Let's keep our eyes open. As I pray, let's keep our eyes open. I want us to pray like visionaries. I want us to see things. My dad, early on, my dad had a mountain that he would take us to. Every Saturday, my dad would take me and my two brothers, and we would climb this mountain he called Prayer Mountain. We would go, we would buy lunch, and we'd, we'd, we'd pack our lunches, and we would hike to the top of this mountain every Saturday for years, and we would pray over our city, the city of Reading, and I'll never forget the day that we were praying, and my dad said, open your eyes, son. We opened our eyes. We felt so guilty. My dad said, I want, I want to teach you how to pray with your eyes open. It took us a while before we weren't guilty about that, and so now I love just praying with my eyes open. God, I want to see, I want to see something. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. I was in uh, Latvia a few years back. Um, I was invited with, with Chris Vallotton and Jesus Culture to uh, host a, um, a conference on sexuality in Latvia. Um, I've, I've had the privilege of preaching this stuff in all kinds of nations, and it's been so fun because every nation's so different, and 
And uh, in Latvia, Latvia is, uh, is, is almost like a lost like country. The, the idea of, of like healthy sexuality, it doesn't exist. So there's a remnant of Jesus followers that are living this out. And, and so they, they uh, promoted this thing. They put posters all over the city and they called it a sex fest. They invited the entire city of Latvia to a sex fest. 5,000 youth showed up. I'm talking 5,000 unsaved youth showed up for a sex fest. Listen, were they disappointed? So Jesus culture led worship, and it was just the, the presence of God. Kim was there, and Chris Kilala, and, and then af- afterwards, uh, um, I got up, and I, and I preached a, a message from Song of Songs, and calling a generation back under the hoopah, and we, we placed a hoopah down on the ground, and, and we, we, we invited a generation to come into the design and the delight. Now, this isn't like Christian kids that are like re- repenting, and this is, this is, dude, thousands of young people walked under this hoopah. We laid hands on every one of them. They were weeping and wailing all night. I, I had hundreds of young women and young men come to me confessing everything you could possibly confess over and over and over again through tears, through, through, through makeup running, and they looked like, you know, goth chicks, and, and, uh, and young men who, who, who had come in like really strong, broken under the presence of God. They would come to me and they would say this, We've never heard anything like this before. We didn't know. We didn't know. I, I want to do something right now. I'm going to pray for three things, but uh, the first thing I want to do is this, and, and if, if worship team um, wants to come or maybe acoustic or keys or whatever, I want to pray. Do we have a few minutes to pray into a couple things? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I, the first thing I want to do is I want to invite, I think there are some of you, God said in Canada, God said in Canada, he said, call a generation back under the hoopah. I want to do that. I, I want to call you back under the hoopah into the, the blessing in Genesis. The Bible says this, God created Adam and Eve in his image. What's the first thing God does? Do you remember? says God bless them. I've spent years praying and asking God what was in the blessing. They would have figured sex out. But something was in the blessing. God created them in his image and he blessed them. What does it look like for us to live What would it look like for God to bless us with, put his hands on us like he put his hands on Adam and Eve that that first day? We we can figure sex out. We can figure sexuality out. We can can tumble with someone under the covers. We We can do whatever we want sexually. But what happens when God puts his hand in it? I mean, I will never, listen, I will never forget my honeymoon night. I had a mentor named uh, Bruce who had this massive beard, this bearded man named Bruce. And, and Bruce would say to me, we would have these kind of sex talks leading up to, you know, my, my honeymoon night. And he would say, listen, when you make love to your wife for the first time on your honeymoon night, I want you to picture Jesus standing 
at the foot of your bed, clapping and cheering you on. Now, I hated that Bruce said that. Because on my honeymoon night, I couldn't see Jesus there. All I saw was big bearded Bruce there. Come on, get out of here. Trying to do this, you know. But guys, guys, the holiness of this moment. The holiness. The honeymoon night is not about sex. It's about holiness. The, The honeymoon... Night is not about getting the position right. It's about trust. The holiness, the the sacredness of this night. Like if I'm honest with you, the the sex was awful, but the holiness was awesome. I remember sensing the, 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 the holiness of God. God, we want you here. If you're here and you're dating, if you're here and you're married, if, and it's time to bring your marriage under the hoopah, or maybe you're dating, it's time to bring your dating life, and maybe you're here and it's time to break up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and go build the room and go find the flame. Maybe you're here and you're single, and, and, and today you want to respond to this word. Whenever the word is preached, there's a response. Heaven leans in. And if you're here and you want to make a covenant, you want to stand. Maybe you've never done this. Maybe you're like, listen, I've never heard any of this before. Like, I was going to fumble through this, but now I want the hoopah. <laughs> I want covering. I want the prayer shawl. I want the Father. I want, I want community. I want it all, God. And you're here, and, and you want to stand under the hoopah just as a statement to go, God, I want to do this. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of, uh, of where you've messed it up, God doesn't care where you've been. He cares what you step into today. If that's you, wherever you're at, and listen, I don't, don't do this out of emotion. Some of you, if you're, listen, do, do not rush. Don't push the river you're in. Do not rush this moment. If you're not there, don't stand into it. God will get you. But if you know right now something's burning in you and I want to step into this, I want to invite you to stand under the hoopah now. Just stand where you're at and put your hands out. Just stand under the hoopah. God, I want the hoopah. I want the glory in it. It won't be perfect, God, but it's going to have you. I'm going to mess it up, but you're going to be there. I won't totally get it right, but God, I'll have covering and community. God, I'm going to mess it up with you. I'm going to fumble through it, God, in friendship. God, I offer my my body. I offer my sexuality. I offer my sex drive. I, I, I offer, God, I offer it right now. God, I want to do this with you. I'm not pursuing purity for you. I'm pursuing it with you. God, purity for God is, listen, we are not living for the approval of Jesus. We live from the approval. We want to do this with you. God, I'm asking for the most fulfilling, fun, spirit-infused, 
hoopah covered. Singleness, dating, engaged, married lives ever. <laughs> 